Okay. Man, glad you guys are here tonight. I, I can't tell you how proud I am to be the pastor of a church where several hundred people will come out on a Tuesday night and just say, let's get into the Word of God. I just, I think it's a cool thing. And uh, so just thank you. Thank you for being that type of people. And I, I know that uh, coming and being here and being part of this uh, costs you something. And so I just honor you for that. I honor you. I honor you for that. Let, let's pray real quick. And uh, we're going to dive in. We're going to go after Romans chapter uh, 10 tonight and just see how far we can get. Hey, dearest Heavenly Father, we just come before you. Thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that when we study it and then live it, it changes our lives. So God, help us to study it well. Help us to be willing uh, to maybe reconsider things that we had heard as children or that somebody we loved had taught us and hold them up and examine it against your word to see whether or not it's actually valid or true or not. Give us the integrity when we find discrepancy to be willing to say, you know what, uh, if I'm going to have to adjust, I've got to adjust to the Word of God and not to tradition or what someone gave to me, but instead to what God said. God, help me tonight to be accurate in my presentation, to to not stray into uh, my own ideas or thoughts, but instead to stay as true as possible uh, to what your Scripture says. And all of this we pray in your precious name. Amen. Okay, Romans chapter 10. We're all agreeing we got that far. We finished chapter 9. We feel good about it? All right. So Romans chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 1, here's what it says. It says, brothers and sisters, uh, my heart's desire and prayer for God, to God, for the Israelites, is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based in knowledge. So remember, if we think back as we started chapter 9 last week, we had part of what we had said and unpacked together was to say chapter 9, which has been forever a controversial uh, passage in Scripture. Really, if you watch what Paul is saying and the argument is unfolding, it's a conversation with Israel. It's a conversation with Jews about this incredible thing that God is now including Gentiles uh, in his plan here on earth. And so, again, as we get to chapter 10, verse 1, that theme is still going. You remember that the Bible, as it is originally written, does not have chapters and verses. And sometimes that can confuse us because as they placed chapters and verses in, they did that where it made sense to them as they put them in, but sometimes it chops up ideas. And sometimes it separates things. And so you stop at the end of the chapter, pick up again at the next chapter and go, how did what? How did what? Because it's, an, it's probably an ill placement. And the chapter numbers and the verse numbers are not inspired, just in case you didn't know. They're, those are not inspired. The words are inspired, but the chapter numbers and verse numbers came way much later. So really what's happening here at the beginning of chapter 10, he's finishing up this conversation. He's, he's again coming back and saying, guys, I know. I know you think I'm this apostle to the Gentiles. I know. I know you think I've turned my back. On my own people, I'm telling you, I haven't turned my back. I've simply joined God in this new thing that God is doing. But you need to know that you still have my heart. I I would do anything for my people Israel to know Jesus Christ. I can relate a little bit to Paul. So, short story on that. I I was serving in a church uh, in California. 
And I, I knew my time at the church there in California was coming to an end. And I watched as that church made decisions to be comfortable with who they were and not worry about anybody who wasn't there yet. And I watched as that church turned in and said, church is for us. And if the people that are outside the church don't like how we do church, then that's their problem. And, and I, I knew that was the trajectory they were going in. I knew that was the path they were on. And I knew I was the wrong guy in the room in that moment. I was only a youth pastor. I wasn't a senior pastor at the time. I was a youth pastor. But I knew my time was coming to an end. And it was actually moving from that church, came here to Cornerstone. And part of the commitment at Cornerstone was to say, hey, look, we're going to always grow people up. That's why we're doing the mind tonight. But we're never going to be just about us. Uh, we're always going to hold Thanksgiving dinner. You know what you do at Thanksgiving dinner? You invite some neighbors over. You invite some college kids who don't have anywhere to go on Thanksgiving. And you make sure that everybody gets fed. That's what you do at Thanksgiving, right? And we said, we're going to be a church that does Thanksgiving every Sunday. We're going to feed ourselves. We're just going to be sure there's some guests in the room who get fed too. Does that make sense? So we did that. As Cornerstone flourished, the church I had left in California, I watched it go in decline, 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 decline couple times over the years, I'd call back and I'd say, you know, hey, if there's ever anything I can do to help, if I could ever come and maybe just advise on a couple things, if I could come and just spend a few days with your leaders, I would do that for free. I would love to do that. Because even though I'm not there anymore, my heart's there. I still love you guys and would do anything for you. That's exactly what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying, sure, God's doing a new thing, and he started this thing called the church, and it's being flooded with Gentile believers because suddenly the good news is is hitting their ears, and they're believing in droves, and it seems like Israel's been kind of set on the sidelines. But Paul says, look, I'm just telling you, I love Israel as much as I've ever loved Israel. I would do anything to see my own people come to know my Jesus. Verse uh, 2, he says, I can testify about them. I can testify about Israel. That they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based in knowledge. Since what they did not know, the righteousness of God, and sought to establish it on their own. So they didn't understand that there was a righteousness that God gives, and so instead they decided to work for it. They decided to build their own righteousness by obeying the law. They did not submit to God's righteousness. So here's what he says. So look, look, look. There was a righteousness that came from God. It came by faith. That's what Romans 4 told us. But they were so busy earning it by trying to keep the law that when the opportunity came for them to set down all that work and all that labor and simply trust in the righteousness that comes from God, the righteousness through Jesus, they couldn't get their heads around it. And so they kept trying to earn it. They were full of zeal. And I'll tell you what, if you ever run into an Orthodox Jew, I mean, the the way in which they go about observing the law, the, the tenacity with which they, is remarkable. It's commendable. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. He says, man, these, I'm telling you, I get it. I get you're doing it with all your heart. The problem is you're doing the wrong thing with all your heart. And by doing the wrong thing with all your heart, you're actually missing God. Now, this is a big deal because this same principle doesn't, doesn't only apply just to the Jews. 
it applies to anybody. And it's simply this. Good intentions don't make something work. Just because you had good intentions, it doesn't make it right. The truth is, good intentions only matter to your mother. Nobody else cares. Then let me give us that. If you go into the store, and there's some young person in the store, so I'm going to sound really old, but there's some young person in the store working the cash register, who it's their first day working the cash register, and with all of their heart, they try to give you change. But it's the wrong change. Do you say to them, oh, you know what? It's okay, your heart was good. Or do you say, hey, you owe me a buck and a half still. Right? They go, well, you know what? I haven't quite learned to count yet, but my heart's in it. Is that okay? You go to a mechanic and you drive your car up and the mechanic says, hey, that's going to be about 1500 bucks to work on your transmission. You come back a week later to pick up the car. You put the car in drive. All you hear is gears slipping and grinding and, and, you, and you go back to the mechanic and you go, what's going on? He goes, you know, I really don't know, but boy, I sure worked on it hard. I, I really, really was sincere. And uh, gave my best effort at fixing it. And you go, well, hey, where's my 1500 bucks back? No. Good intentions count. See, here, isn't it honest that good intentions don't change outcomes? And just because you had a good intention, it doesn't make something that's a mistake a truth or something that was wrong right. And here Paul is saying, hey, guys, I get it. I get that you went after God with a zeal. I get you were trying to work your way to heaven with all of your might. But you need to know you missed the righteousness of God because you were trying to build your own righteousness. And guys, the reason this is important is because you and I have a lot of friends who are involved in different types of faiths that exclude the necessity to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. And at the end of the day, you and I would look at him and we'd say, no, I get it. I get it. You're totally sincere. Matter of fact, you may be more committed to what you're doing than a lot of my friends and a lot of the people in my own church are committed to what we're doing. You may very well be. You may be full of zeal, just like the Jews. The problem is sincerity and zeal doesn't mean it's okay. And ultimately, you have to be Right. And right comes down to, what have you done with Jesus Christ? What have you done with the Savior? Verse 3. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish it on their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness For everyone who believes. So Paul here proposes, hey, wait, 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 wait. Jesus is the culmination of the law. Jesus is what the law was always working us toward. It it is the appropriate final chapter to the story that God wrote as he gave us all these rules and ordinances to follow. How would that be true? How would Jesus actually be the culmination, the proper final chapter to the law. Anybody got ideas? Okay, so microphone runners over here. Microphone runner. Oh, there we go. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Jesus kept the law perfectly in his life. 
Okay, so Jesus kept the law perfectly. Why is it, why is it so surprising that Jesus kept the law perfectly? Well, he was man as well as God. All right, let me phrase the question differently. Why is Jesus keeping the law perfectly exceptional? Because, why? Because no one else has ever done it. And if that was the very point of the law, if the very reason the law was given was in order for you to realize that you could not possibly achieve it, then suddenly in that moment, you say, well, now what? Think of it this way. This is a bad illustration, but think of it this way. So that's why I'm going to give it to you. It's a bad illustration, but I'm going to give it to you anyways. All right. Let's, let's imagine that you're climbing Everest. Okay, and I don't think this even works because I think Everest is too high. But let's just imagine this. You're climbing Everest and you, and, and you, you have to make it to the top. In order to get to heaven, you have to make it to the top. And so now as you're climbing Everest and now as the oxygen begins to dissipate, as your muscles begin to seize up and, and freeze, as you begin to get frostbite in your fingers and your extremities, you begin to realize, I will never make it. I've got to make it to the top in order to go to heaven, but I will never make it. It's impossible. I don't have the physical capacity and ability to make it to the top. I'm in trouble. That was the very purpose of the law. The very purpose of the law was the burning in your lungs. The very purpose of the law was the frostbite in your fingers. The very purpose of the law was the knots in your thighs. To say to you, look, you failed and you failed again and you're seizing up and you're not going to make You will never make it. And then in that moment... When you finally realize, I won't, I, I gotta make it to go to heaven, but I can't make it, a helicopter comes. See, if the helicopter had come 10 minutes earlier, when you still thought you had a chance of making it, you might have sent the helicopter away. But now that you've realized, the helicopter looks really good. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, you realize the law was given to you to make you realize you needed a helicopter. You needed a savior. And without the law, you would have never felt the need. You would have, you would have been at the bottom of Everest going, no, I can climb it anytime I want to. I, no, no, no. I'm, I'm going to make it. The law was given to you to confront you. The law was given to you to produce in you the knowledge. I'm in trouble. It's so interesting. You go out and talk to people all the time and you go, hey, how are you going to have? No, oh, I'm a good person. I keep the Ten Commandments. Hey, what are the Ten Commandments? Do that sometimes. Go to a friend and go, hey, how many of the Ten Commandments do you know? I bet you they can't get past three. So how do you know you're keeping them? And then that's when you go, well, have you ever lied? Well, yeah. Uh, you ever use the Lord's name in vain? Last night. You ever looked on a woman with lust? I mean... The law was given to let you and I know that we were never going to make it to Everest. So that when the helicopter came, when Jesus offered life, you and I would reach up and say, I need life. So Jesus is the culmination of the law because he becomes the answer when we become stranded by the law. Back to the passage. 
Uh, verse 4 again. Uh, there's an interesting phrase there. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for who? Everyone. I thought only some were chosen. Oh, never mind. Okay, we're, we're done with that one, right? Okay. For everyone uh, who believes. Verse 5. Uh, Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. And all that phrase means is simply this. Hey, if you're going to go by the law, if that's the card you're going to play, Israel, then that's the card you have to live by. I mean, if you're saying, I don't need the helicopter, I don't need the Savior, I'm going to get to the top of Everest by myself. I mean, if that's the choice you make, if you send the Savior away, you realize then you're stuck with that. You're stuck trying to make it to the top on your own strength, on your own merit, on your own capacity and ability. Uh, verse 6. But does do does these things will who does these things will live by them? But the righteousness that is by faith says, "Do not say in your heart." Okay, so watch this. This is some really funky words. Okay, really weird passage. So here's what it says: But the righteousness, the righteousness that is by faith says, "Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep." That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what it does say, the word is near you, it is in your mouth, and it's in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. Now, that's kind of funky sounding. Let me read this for you again. It says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. What do you think Paul is saying here? Isn't that weird? Matter of fact, it's interesting because Peter, writing in the book of Peter about Paul, said, Boy, Brother Paul writes some really weird stuff. But we're confident it's from God. (laughs) And this is one of those passages that, honestly, you look at and you go, Paul, I, I think you're making a point. I'm just not sure what the point is that you're trying to make. Who will ascend up into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down? Who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? Here's here's my best shot at it. Remember, he's talking about working your way to heaven, right? He's talking about you doing things so that you can be saved. And here's what I think he's trying to say. Did you have to go to heaven and talk Jesus into coming to earth? I mean, did you have, was that your responsibility and is that something you had to do so that you could bring Christ down? Or did you have to go into the depths of the earth and then help Jesus get resurrected so that he could do this saving thing? Or was it God who did all of it for you? And I think that's what Paul's trying to say. He's saying, guys, Jesus came not because you made him come or because you went and forced him. He came because he was coming to seek you. And you didn't have anything to do with raising him from the dead. God did that. So the reality is the person making your salvation possible is not you and it's not your effort and it's not your work. God did all the work. He sent his son and then he resurrected him after he died. So why are you trying to work 
when God's already done all the work. That's the closest I can get to what Paul was doing. Now, we're going to have a Bible study with Paul when we get to heaven. And we're going to say, Paul, there's this really weird verse in Romans 10. And what did you mean? And he may tell you I was all wet, but that's the best I can get to uh, on it. But I reserve the right to be wrong on that. Here's an interesting thing that's in the phrasing there, though, that I just want to throw out, see if you guys want to talk about it at all or not, or we'll just move on. He talks about, he goes, hey, uh, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That's to bring Christ down. And I think that image is pretty quick. And you go, well, hey, it's just talking about, you know, you'd go to heaven and say, hey, Jesus, people need to get saved. Would you, you know, come down and walk the earth for three and a half years and, you know, die on a cross and pay for their sins. But the next one, or who will descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. What's that talking about? Isn't that interesting? Grab your Bibles real quick. Go with me to Luke chapter 16. Actually, let's, whoa, whoa, let's go. I'm sorry. Let's go to John. Luke's the next one. Let's go to John, chapter 20. Start in verse 11. Here's what it says. John chapter 20, starting verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent down to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other one at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus, probably because of the tears in her eyes. Uh, He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? How fun was that for Jesus? Right? Mary's there. Her eyes are all swollen and full of tears. And Jesus goes, hey, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Oh, I'm looking for Jesus. How fun was that? All right. Thinking he was the gardener. uh, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Go instead to my, to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. Now, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus has been dead for three days. He's now resurrected, right? And Mary finds him there at the tomb. When she recognizes him, she wraps her arms around his legs. He says, no, 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 Mary, don't, don't hang on to me right now. I still haven't gone before the father and presented myself yet. Well, if Jesus wasn't in heaven for those three days, where was Jesus? Isn't that a good question? Some theologians will tell you that they think that Jesus was in hell burning. I don't think that's biblically accurate. 
Okay, I, I just, I don't think that that's even possible. And let, let me tell you why. Hell, hell is not a place in which you pay for sin. In other words, no one goes to hell to pay for their sins. There is, there's, there's no redeeming payment for being in hell. And if it was possible, I mean, if Jesus had gone there for three days and had somehow burned off the, you know, the world's sins, well, then why wouldn't people be able to go to hell? And if you weren't that bad, burn off your sins after a while, and you don't even need Jesus because you did your own hell time. And I don't think Jesus is in hell burning off our sins. I think Jesus settled everything on the cross. But then that leaves us with an interesting question that says, hey, wait a minute, where was Jesus? And then remember the passage that we just read that says something about, are you going to descend into the earth to bring Jesus up? Isn't that interesting? Okay, anybody feel like that's interesting? No? All right. Who wants to talk about this? Who says, let's save it for another time, keep going and get back to Romans? Come on, there's a couple of you that feel that way. There's two. Okay, all right, all right. Let's go after this for a minute or two. You don't have to agree with what I'm about to say. What I'm going to tell you is this is one of those things that you are absolutely free to disagree with me on, and you are still a Christian. Barely, but you are still a Christian, okay? So I just want to give you that confidence in the Lord, okay? And and again, I'm just going to tell you, this is my best understanding of what explains some verses in the Bible that on first reading you go, hmm, too. Uh, but I reserve the right to get to heaven and have Jesus say that you were so silly, okay? Because I'm not sure about these, but I think I am. Okay, so now let's go to Luke chapter 16. Okay, so remember the question that we're asking is, Jesus, when he dies, doesn't go to heaven because he says to Mary, I haven't ascended to the Father yet. We have passages that seem to say he went to the heart of the earth. I just told you I don't think he's burning in hell. So what's going on? All right. So it's Luke chapter 16. It's verse 19. It's the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Now, here's what you need to know. The story of Lazarus and the rich man is not a parable. Here's how you know it's not a parable. And when every single parable starts, Jesus starts it with the same words. Does anyone know what the words are? Huh? Anybody know? Anybody want to guess? The kingdom of heaven is like. And when he does that, he's telling you, I'm going to tell you something that's metaphorical. I'm going to tell you something that's illustrative. The kingdom of heaven is like. He does not say that at the beginning of the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Here's the second thing. In no parable does Jesus ever use a name. And yet in this parable, he uses a name. And you go, well, maybe he made that one up. No, but in in this story, he actually talks about Abraham, who is a true historical figure. And he puts him in the story. And I'm just going to say to you guys, this is not a parable. Here's why some Christians try to make this story a parable. Because in this parable, Jesus describes hell. And you have Christians who want to say, well, hell's not a real place. And so they try to turn this teaching of Jesus into a parable. It is not a parable. Jesus is pulling back the curtains 
and letting you see for a minute. So here we go. It's the rich man and Lazarus. It's uh, Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. Here's what it says. There was a rich man. You have never heard him say that in a parable. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came to lick his sores. The time came when the beggar uh, died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades where he was in torment He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. You had your opportunities. You had every chance to believe just like Lazarus did. While Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides, between us and you is a great chasm which has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family For I have five brothers, let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses, they have the prophets, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone were to rise from the dead. End of the conversation. But it's interesting Because Jesus gives us a description of something that we don't have a description of anywhere else in Scripture. Okay? So let's see if we can we can figure out what Jesus was describing. So Jesus says there's a place. Right? This is my anatomically correct drawing of a place. Okay? So he says there's a place. And in this place, there was the rich man uh, who was in torment. Right? And then he says, there's Lazarus, and Lazarus was with Abraham, okay? And when the rich man calls across and says, hey, send Lazarus to dip his finger in some water and put it on my tongue, Abraham says, he can't. He can't because there's a great what? Chasm between us. Now, this is an interesting description, guys. I don't know about you, but for a long time, I never even stopped and thought, well, what did Jesus just describe? He just described a place where there were people who were apparently believers who were in a place looking across a chasm and could see the people who were struggling and suffering and torment in Hades. That's an interesting description. Grab your Bibles. Go with me to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. All right, so I'm just going to toss this out. I'm going to set it there. You decide what you think. 
Is it possible that what Jesus was just describing were that after death, you had people who were going here uh, who did not believe, and they were waiting in Hades, but that you had people who had believed, and that they were actually waiting here. So you'd have righteous on one side, or those who had, had believed, and the unrighteous, those without belief on the other side. Abraham, of course, is on the believing side. Lazarus is on the believing side. Is it possible that what Jesus is describing is Old Testament saints? People who died before the cross. Because, next question, if you died before the cross, then what hadn't been applied to your life yet? The blood of Jesus. So if the blood of Jesus hasn't been applied yet, are you able to go to heaven yet? So I'm just asking. I'm just, I'm just asking. Because God can do whatever he wants to do. I'm just, I'm just asking. Ephesians chapter 4. Starting in verse 8. And again, God, you don't have to agree with any of this. This is one thing you can go home and say, Lynn was really dumb tonight. That's okay. It's okay. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 8. Here's what it says. This is why it says... When he ascended on high, who's he? Jesus. When Jesus ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does it mean he ascended except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? Isn't that an interesting verse in Ephesians? So here's what I'm just going to toss out. You can think about it. You can laugh about it. You can do whatever you want to with it. You can put it in your pipe and smoke it. All right. So what if, what if Old Testament saints, because the cross hasn't happened yet, because the payment for their sin has not been paid, had to wait? And they waited in a place that you and I would call paradise or Abraham's side or whatever you want to call that. They waited. And that place, they could see the others who were waiting for judgment. And what if when Jesus dies on the cross, because remember we just decided that Jesus did not go to heaven, but instead went to the lower earthly regions for three days. Is it possible that Jesus preached to them and explained to the Old Testament saints how he had just died on the cross and how the lamb, that's a lamb, had just shed its blood for them and now their salvation was finished. And then Jesus led captive those in his train and presented them before God when he presented himself. I don't know. It answers some questions. All right, hand is up. Yep. Yeah. Where does the Apostle Creed and the 9C Creed fit into this discussion? Because that's kind of the, it all in a nutshell. Yeah. Um, I, I As much as you want it to fit in. Here's why I say that. What creeds are is they're, they're trying to take Scripture as a whole and take it and put it into very succinct declarations of faith. Right? So at the end of the day, creeds are always man-made. And so uh, the Nicene Creed is actually a pretty darn good creed. It's just not something that you necessarily use for reference because what you and I use for reference is always Scripture. So 
as far as it's accurate and true, and the Nicene Creed is a fairly accurate description of scriptural truth, then that's good. But it's never the proof. So that makes sense. What else? Other questions? Who's completely weirded out? All right. Is this where the whole notion of purgatory is I love on? that you asked that because every time I talk about this, someone asks. And here's the answer. I don't think so. It's, it's great that you asked that, and, and it becomes, I think, the most logical thing. You go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You know, maybe that's where Catholics came up with the idea of purgatory. And as best I can tell with the Catholics that I've sat down and talked to, and I've, I've actually sat down with some of their theological, more driven-type priests and said, hey, help, help me walk through this. Where'd you come with it? And as best I can get, it has nothing to do with this part of the conversation. It really comes out of this idea of working your way to heaven and that you're going to die not having fulfilled that because you can't um, unless you're a saint. Now, you realize that by declaring someone a saint, okay, I'm just, I'm just okay, guys, I'm just going to say this out loud because it's, it's what they teach, that if, that if someone is declared a saint, what you're doing when the Catholic Church declares a person a saint is they're saying that person lived such a good life, they did not need the blood of Jesus to go to heaven. Because their life was beyond needing redemption. And a matter of fact, one of the reasons you pray to a saint is because they have extra points. They have exceeded the number needed and can actually give you some of their extra points. Which would mean that a saint could actually be saving to you. Which is completely unbiblical. We understand that, right? That's completely unbiblical. It's completely unscriptural. Which is why it's such a horrible misunderstanding of what a saint is. Because scripture calls every person who's been put under the blood of Jesus a saint. And it's not because they earned their way or because they were a good person. It's because they're under the blood of Jesus. But back to purgatory. I'll get there. The idea of purgatory is because you, you, you get to a place where you die. And now for whatever good you've done, whatever confessions you've made, for whatever... Uh, you've done to keep the sacraments, whatever good you've done probably and, and does not outweigh your bad for the vast, vast majority of people. So now you have to find some way to atone. And if you look again back into the Catholic Church, so there's always been flagellation. I'm going to, you know, whip myself so, so that by pain, I somehow atone for my sins. And then purgatory becomes this not quite as hot as hell, but pretty bad place that I go to burn off the rest of my sins. And it's just not, it's just, it's not from this and it's, yeah. I was raised Catholic and yeah. um, before I left the Catholic Church, I asked a priest, I had a meeting with a priest because I was interested in a Bible study. And one of the things the priest told me he said, there is no such thing as purgatory. You won't find hmm. it in the Bible. Well, I thought, well, that's what I thought. Well, today I happened to go to a, a funeral, and there was a Catholic Mass, and that priest didn't get the word because he brought up purgatory in the Mass. Yeah. He didn't know. So, all right, so I'm, what I'm about to, you need to hear me say this. I want to be as kind as I possibly can as I say this. Because here, here's the thing, guys. You understand that there are lots of people in the Catholic Church who really are Christians. There are. And I just want to say that. There are. But one of the reasons that's able to happen is because Catholics are not very good at teaching. If you've ever gone to a Catholic Mass, 
they almost, they may read a short passage of scripture, but they almost never teach scripture. And, and, and because they're not good at teaching it, the reality is the average person in the Catholic Church does not have a thorough understanding of the doctrine, of what is actually the doctrine of the church and what the priests believe. They just don't. It's, it, you, you and I are part of a church that believes being in the Word is critical. That believes even I, as your senior pastor, am accountable to the Word. And that if I ever said anything from the pulpit or said anything in teaching you that was unfit for the Word, wasn't true to the Word, that you have the right to call me out on it. And that I should then be reproved for teaching something that is not of the Word of God. That's, that is the emphasis and value of the faith that you and I have. Within the Catholic movement, the Word of God is not central. Communion and sacraments are central. And not the teaching of the Word. And therefore, most Catholics, it's kind of like we just talked to Israel, full of zeal and great intention. Most of them don't know the doctrine of the Catholic Church. So back to these people being the Old Testament saints, yeah. right? Um, didn't we just go over in Revelations during the last session that these people were basically put through trial after tribulations and everything? So did they go up to heaven, stay there for a while, and then after Revelations, all right, we're going to pull you back out? You are you are connecting dots. Good I'm, for you. I'm trying to focus. All right. Attention. All right. So let me, let me, uh, let me do this real quick because I don't want us to take a lot of time because we already chased a rabbit here. But so remember, we've been talking on Sunday mornings and we've been saying, hey, okay, so we've got the rapture that happens right here. I got to get a new one of these because the tip keeps falling off. All right. We've, we've got the seven years, which is the trib. Then you have the actual second coming of Christ that closes everything out. And then you start the millennium, that thousand-year reign. And then we get to this incredible thing called the white throne judgment. And, and here's the easiest way to remember the white throne judgment. Everybody besides the church goes to the white throne judgment. The church has a separate judgment during the tribulation called the Bema Seat. Why does the church have a separate judgment? Isn't that an interesting question? Why do we get a separate judgment than everybody else? Well, these these Old Testament saints, because remember, if Jesus now, the blood is applied, they're forgiven too. Why does the church get a different judgment than everybody else? Yep. Um, as in the Old Testament, there was a promise of a Savior. And as we accept our Savior, we accept God's grace and love and promise that even though we will always be sinners, he will still love us when we love and accept his love and grace, which is what Jesus' righteousness shows us. And by having that faith in Jesus' righteousness, we accept and understand God's grace and love and in return, love him back. Okay. 
So I, I'm there, but I would say that tribulation saints did the same thing or are going to do the same thing. They're going to understand Jesus. They're going to love Jesus. Matter of fact, tribulation saints are probably going to love Jesus better than you and me because a lot of them are going to die for Jesus. And you and I think it's really, really hard to tithe. All right? So, so why, why does the church get judged at a separate time. Matter of fact, it gets judged right here during the seven years. You ready? All right, one more guess. Pre-second coming. Pre-second coming. Yeah. But why do we get a separate judgment? Why not just let everybody get judged at the white throne? Why does the church get a separate judgment? Okay, we're going to try it back there again. Because Christ is going to marry us and we have to be perfectly sinless and... And available as a bride. Yeah. So the Bible calls the church, you ready? The bride of Christ. No other group of people is called that. But you and I as the church are called the bride of Christ. And before the men in the room get all weird and go, is there anything sexual to that? No. There's nothing sexual to that. It's just simply saying that incredible thing that happens, that incredible relationship between a man and a woman, where they commit themselves to each other and in love is the easiest way for you to understand the special relationship that the church is going to have with Jesus through all eternity. You and I are going to be set aside as the bride of Christ. So, guess when the marriage supper of the Lamb happens? Guess when the marriage supper? The, what do you call it, the wedding? What is it? What do you do with the reception? Is it a reception after the wedding? Okay, the reception. It happens right before the second coming. So the bride puts on her white gown, the judgment, goes through the wedding, and guess who comes back when Jesus comes back with him? The bride. The bride. And this incredible thing that you and I are in that is called the church has, you and I have this special regard in the heart of God, this special place uh, in his, in relationship to Christ. Yep. Okay. Um, My question is, place that you drew uh, from the story of Lazarus. That anatomically correct place that I drew. It was. It's, it's important you say that. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, like, is, is that would be Sheol, right, from the Old Testament, where, the, where everybody goes to wait, and then maybe, like, uh, Christ takes the Old Testament saints and the thief from the cross and brings them to somewhere separate called paradise, because Christ can't stay there where uh, the, all the sinners are in his presence because he's God, right? No, you know, Christ could because you got to remember in... Sorry. I, so Jesus, I'll just do this real quick and then if you want to go deeper in the question, we can do that first. Jesus could because you remember Jesus just walked the earth with sinners, right? Because Jesus came in human form, he veiled his godless, godness, is veiled in that moment. And so... He could be in the presence. Okay? All right. So let's go back because the original question was, hey, what's happening at the white throne judgment when Old Testament believers are there? And remember, I told you the white throne judgment is like a movie screen, right? Because people's lives are being exposed because for what they were. Well, what about, why are Old Testament saints there? Because their sins are under the blood of Jesus. So here, here's the deal, and you're exactly right. So here's what I know is that if their lives go up on the screen then there's going to be a lot of dead space. There's going to be a lot of buffering moments. 
Okay, Because anything that they've done that was wrong is under the blood of Jesus and would never be shown because it's forgiven, right? The Bible says that once our sins are placed under the blood of Jesus, he remembers them no more ever, ever. There's only one thing in all of eternity that God has forgotten, and it's our sins. And it's because he chose to which is an amazing thought. There's one thing that God does not know. It's your sins. Because he chose to put them away. Isn't that amazing? Okay, all right. So let's get back to Romans. You guys are wasting my time. All right, here we go. <laughs> Romans chapter 10. I have a question. <laughs> All right, where are we at? Where's the question? Right here. I want to look you in the eyes when you ask me this question. All right. What about Charles Manson? Is he in hell? Will he go to hell? Will he go where? Which place are you choosing? Yeah, Charles Manson. He should be. But then the truth is, every one of us should be too. So here's what I don't know. Has Charles Manson ever had a moment in his life in which he bonafidely, legitimately accepted Jesus as his Savior? Because, here's the deal, guys. You and I are in trouble the minute we start deciding that there's some sins that the blood of Jesus can't cover. Because here's what I'm going to tell you. All the sins I commit, Jesus can cover. But the ones you commit, can't cover. There is no such thing as a sin that Jesus can't cover. So what I don't know and what you don't know, but we'll know when we stand in heaven, is for any person, for any mass murderer, for any child molester, for any person, whatever, however dark, think about this. The Apostle Paul killed dozens more people than Charles Manson ever killed. The Apostle Paul went out and literally just wiped out whole communities of Christians because he was a Jew and he thought he was doing God a service by getting rid of this cult of Christians. That's what he did pre-Jesus. That's why Paul says, hey, if I can be saved, anybody can be saved. I am the chief of sinners. I was killing Christians. In the name of God. So the answer at the end of the day is, has someone put their faith in Jesus Christ? And here's the interesting part about it. Were they four years old in Sunday school somewhere and they did it and then lived the rest of their life in just carelessness? Remember um, when we were doing the Revelation series, we talked about the judgment seat for even for Christians and said, there's going to be some Christians there who everything they did in their life, when you place it in the fire, all of it burns up. They didn't do one thing for the name of Jesus. They, even though they became a Christian, they lived every bit of the rest of their life for themselves. And it says they'll still go to heaven, but it'll be as if there was still smoke on the clothes. I mean, they barely got through the fire to the other side. So it's possible. It's possible for someone to become a Christian when they're five and then fight Jesus the rest of their lives. Now, here's what I'll say about that. The Bible says that whenever you're a Christian and you disobey God, what does God do? Spanks, Hebrews chapter 10. 
And if you see somebody who claims to be a Christian and God never spanks them, you have every right to go to them and say, hey, I just want to ask you a question. Have you actually put legitimate faith in Jesus? And here's why I'm asking. Because you tell me you're a Christian, but I see you living in disobedience and I have never seen you get spanked. And the Bible tells me that God spanks his sons and daughters. Hebrews chapter 10. Matter of fact, and some of you have heard me say this before. I'm 16 years old. I'm sitting in a car with my dad. And you guys know a little of my story. My dad took off when I was nine. My mom and my sisters and I, I mean, we're struggling. I mean, we, we were struggling. Okay. In the meantime, my dad is being highly successful. It's the front end of the electronics industry exploding on the scene. Uh, and he's at the head of it, and he's getting promoted, and he's making money hand over fist, and he's buying airplanes, and he's buying multiple homes, and he's buying the newest of all the cars, and he's traveling all over the world. And I'm going, wow, this stinks, because here my mom and my sisters and me, we're trying to serve Jesus over here. My dad is over there committing every sin known to man. My best guess is I think my dad did everything except homosexuality. And he's loving life. And we're over here suffering. And so I'm 16 years old and I'm sitting in a car with my dad. And I just said, Dad, I I just got to ask you, are you actually a Christian? And he said, well, of course I am. Why would you even ask me that? And I said to him what I just said to you. Because, Dad, I've never seen you get spanked. Your life seems to be up and to the right. And scripture says that if you're a child of God, God will spank you. So I I don't understand the moment. I I don't get it right now. Now, it's interesting because I did get to see God spank him later. And the cool part is, and I don't know if I always tell the story, my dad ended up coming back to Christ. He actually, when we started Cornerstone, came to Cornerstone, the early years of Cornerstone. His new wife served on our staff in our children's area. When they moved to Payson, he started a Bible study and became a member of a church up there and has served like crazy. I mean, God totally turned my dad around. It's just a great redemption story. Yeah. So, all right, question. Can you explain if God forgives our sins? Yes. When does we are to give an account for our sins and everything is in the dark, but when the light comes? Yeah. So what that is, when you're reading that scripture, that's a warning to people who haven't placed their sins under Jesus. So it's saying everything done in the darkness is going to be brought to light. You think you're getting away with it right now. You're not. But if you're a Christian, that sin, the Bible says he removes it as far as the east is from the west. He took that as far away, he took it so far away you can never find it again. So as Christians, we never give an account again because it's gone. Which though brings up an interesting question. If that sin is gone, then why do I still confess my sins? Think about that for a second. If I, in other words, when I became a Christian, the day I accepted Jesus in my heart, if God forgave all of my past sins, forgave all of my present sins, and forgave all the future sins I was going to sin, or, right? So I got saved when I was six. So when I was on that bunk bed at six years old and asked Jesus in my heart, he forgave all of my sins at seven and eight and nine and 10, 11, 12, and then however long I live, all of those sins were forgiven when I was six years old. If that's true, then why do I still need to confess my sins if my sins are forgiven? Isn't that interesting? 
Because 1 John says, confess your sins. Anybody got an answer? Okay. Is it an answer or are you going to question? Because sin separates us from God. There you go. Because when God forgives me for my sin, okay, he, re- he removes all punishment. He removes all payment and debt. But sin still has the capacity to relationally distance me from God. Okay? Let me start up with this real quick. How many of us have kids? How many of us have gone through times when our kids were being stinkers? Okay. During that period of time, did your kid ever stop being your kid? No. You thought about it, but they were still your kid. That was the problem. They were still your kid. But because they're being stinkers, something's going on in the relationship, right? So when they come in in the morning to get breakfast and sit down at the table and you go, hey, how you doing? They're... You need a ride to school today? Right? There's something going on relationally. And you're seeing there's a parent saying, you know, it doesn't have to be this way, right? Let's just, come on, just admit you were wrong. Admit that you should have cleaned your room when I asked you to clean your room. I'll give you your phone back in a couple days. Well, it'll be done. And then you go, okay, it's going to be a long time then, right? Because what's going on is they haven't lost their sonship. They haven't lost their daughtership, right? They're still your child, but the relationship is strained. That's exactly what happens to us in God. So when you and I sin, it's not, oh, you lost your salvation and you stopped being a child of God and you're not going to... No, 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 you're still a son of God. You're still a daughter of God. You're still saved. But that attitude, that because here's what you do when you sin. When you sin, you realize what you're saying is, God, I know it's wrong. I know Jesus had to die on the cross for it, and I don't give a rip. I'm going to do it anyways. I don't care. I don't care that it's disobedience. I don't care that it hurts your heart. I'm going to do it anyways, which is exactly what teenagers do, right? And in that moment, you and I damage the relationship. You and I distance the relationship. So what is confession? What is repentance? Repentance and confession are saying, look, I was doing my own thing, I was doing the wrong, and I'm turning around and I'm going to come back to Jesus and say, I was wrong. I'm wrong and I'm sorry and I just want things to be okay between us again. Not so you get saved again, so that you renew the relationship. Does that make sense? Isn't that what every parent longs for their child to do when they're locked in their room and playing their music? And when you, when you just love for them to come out and just go, Dad, I, w- I was a jerk. I didn't mean anything that I said. Will you forgive me? Wouldn't that be a great moment with your kid? And that's exactly what God is saying that confession is as a Christian. That you and I are just simply going back to Dad and going, Dad, man, I, I was wrong. And I don't want this between us. And I want us like this. So maybe one more, one more analogy to give you real quick too, because I think this is pretty critical. And then we'll be done. Um, 
that distance is real. And it's not a distance of losing God. That's not what it is. It's a relational distance. So think of it this way. If you were walking side by side with somebody, you could hear every word they were saying. Right? Matter of fact, if it's a quiet day, you could even hear the whispers. Which is really a great analogy for what it means to be in right relationship with God. You're right there with him. Which means even the tiniest things he says, you're able to hear. And whether that's through reading scripture, whether that's through prayer, but you're there. Okay? But when you let sin separate, cause that distance in the relationship. So now you're walking down a road and you're walking on either side of the road. How loud do you have to talk to hear each other? Hey! What? You want to go get something to eat? What about my feet? What? Right? Because there's distance there. And you need to know that if you live your life knowing that you're sinning, knowing that you have a place of disobedience, you are living your life at distance from God. And you are not hearing God very well right now because you have knowingly put yourself at distance. Live your life with enough sin disobey flagrantly and make that distance far enough and I don't care how loud you yell the other person can't hear hmm. you ever experienced that? you see someone over there hey! can't hear you for anything and it's possible for a Christian to have so much rebellion so much just stubbornness in their life say God I'm going to live this way I don't care you died on the cross so he gives a rip I'm just going to you know, take my free ticket to heaven and I'm going to live like a hellion and you live in disobedience to God and live at such a distance that you can no longer hear him. Which ought to just terrify you. Next time you talk to an atheist, ask them why they're an atheist. Because here's what I'm going to challenge you on. The vast, 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 vast majority of atheists are not atheists because they sat down in some philosophy class and had some revelatory moment and went, well, in theoretical knowledge, it's just not possible for a God to exist in the universe like God. That's not how they became an atheist. You know how they became an atheist? Sin. And in their conscience, they knew, if I'm doing this and there's a God, I'm in trouble. So the easiest way out of trouble is to deny that there is a God. And pretend he's not there. And then my life doesn't look hypocritical. Living at a distance from God is dangerous. All right. You ran me out of time. You chased me on too many rabbit trails. It was all your fault. I did my best to get us back. All right. All right. Let's, no, let's pray real quick and we'll be done. Here we go. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, thank you for tonight. Thanks for a chance to be together. God, maybe just something we said together tonight uh, touched a heart. Maybe there was someone in this room who needed us to hear exactly what we talked about. And uh, God, I would just ask that your Holy Spirit would do his work and that uh, lives and hearts would be changed. God, again, thank you for people who would take their time to study the word. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thank you, guys.